Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. podcast. You're about to hear part two of my conversation with Robbie Perry, former fraud investigations manager for Chase and Capital One. If you haven't yet listened to part one, I highly encourage you to stop this one and start there to learn more about Robbie's career path, the motivations and efforts of card issuers in the fight against card fraud, and other experiences from his 20 plus years on the card issuing side. But if I'm being honest, the second conversation with Robbie was my favorite. I got to ask him questions that came from some of you, listeners of the podcast. Questions like, if there was one thing you'd recommend merchants do differently, what would it be? We talked about both fraud fighting and what he would suggest merchants to do on that front, as well as chargebacks. And I have to say, I really appreciated his chargeback advice, probably because it aligns with mine. But still, it's good stuff, and I think you guys will really, really find it interesting. Another question that I got to ask him from you was, if a merchant or acquirer identifies an anomaly on a particular bin, the bank identification number, which, side note, I talked a lot about bin analytics on last week's news episode of the podcast, uh, what tips can you provide to contact that specific issuer? This is a big one because a lot of times merchants and issuers are in two completely different silos and we don't always know how to contact the other piece when there's a specific issue. And last but not least, and there are actually so many more, but this is just a sample of the questions. If an issuer's bin is compromised, what do they do? I was actually really surprised by his honesty and candor in this one. Uh, And I think it will help you in your strategy to fight fraud as well. He also talks about his latest chapter in his career and why it supports his passion for fighting fraud through collaboration, something we both share. This episode's a little bit longer than others, but I thought it was important to share as much of Ravi's experience as I could. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thanks so much for returning to the Fraudology podcast. I am back with Robbie Perry from Sentilink. And if you haven't listened to part one of this interview, I highly recommend to stop this one, go back to episode 40, where you learn a lot about his career path and especially some really great information about his all of his work on the issuing side and as well just his perspective on the payments ecosystem in e-commerce and just in general, fraud and how that works. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking so you can go back and listen to that next episode. If you already listened to that previous episode, you're in for a treat because Ravi agreed to come back and uh, answer more questions. And a lot of these questions in today's episode are going to be from you guys, from my LinkedIn posts, from a couple of the merchant collaboration calls I had over the last few weeks. 
So I think a lot of people were excited to know that I was going to be talking with someone with so much vast experience on the issuing side. And it solicited a lot of questions from some great people that work for pretty big companies. So Ravi, thank you so much for coming back to Fraudology. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you, Chris. It's it's great to be back with you. And just again, really excited and humbled to be a part of your program. So I appreciate it. Well, I'm excited and humbled to have you. So it's likewise. <laughs> so well, good. All, all the fraud love around here. Um, <laughs> so I think I'm just going to dive into some of these questions that came in uh, specifically from merchants. Uh, so we know that perspective is who's you know, writing these questions. The first one, that we're, so we, last week we talked about what some of the biggest misconceptions you think online merchants have about issuers when it comes to online fraud. I think the short version yep. of that was that you don't care. I think you're on the issue exciting more of it. We've got all into that. But the next follow-up is if there was one thing you'd recommend e-commerce merchants do differently, what would it be? And then they said they're curious if the answer is 3D Secure or other programs where merchants get insight um, somehow into the issuing world. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, you know, I think just in general, it's merchants somehow getting more information, you know, on that issuing card, right? Who the customer is, where they're located, and whether that's, you know, 3DS or what other type of program we currently have or we may have in the future. You know, I, I think we talked about that a little bit in the last episode mm -hmm. too, was there just, there's a lot of gaps in information, right? Whether it's, you know, in the, the fraud prevention piece up front or in the chargeback piece, you know, at the end, mm -hmm. I, I think those gaps really just prevent a lot of, whether it's information sharing or you know, just a better understanding of different processes or even when you get into the investigations that mm -hmm. aspect of it, right? After the fraud's taken place, right? Well, let's go get some bad guys. And yeah. So I think just all of that, there's just so many of those gaps where, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity, whether it be, you know, technology to to help bridge some of those gaps. You know, and I think you've seen that in certain places. I mean, you you know, last episode you brought up you know, Capital One. And mm -hmm. they definitely are an issuer that is, you know, tends to be much more involved with a, a lot of the, you know, yeah. merchant than, you know, your typical issuer, right? And so, you know, I know, you know, they've, you know, focus on, you know, building different programs and, you know, at more, you know, sharing more information actively. I mean, I, I, you know, I think like one great example, you know, while I was at Capital One took on the Walmart credit card. And one of the pieces of information that they put together to share was when it was a, you know, a Capital One uh, Walmart card transaction at Walmart, Walmart was able to send a little additional data over and hmm. we call the authorization. Mm -hmm. And so that actually included something, some codes that would identify if the purchase was a gift card Interesting. or, or if it was electronics mm -hmm. related. Right. So some of that, you know, we've always talked about like, well, we have no idea what's right. Right. Uh, right. Issuer. And so that was just an example of them, you know, using that relationship that they had through that co-brand card of say, hey, let's maybe share some additional information here. Let's right. see if that's going to be beneficial and useful at all. And that's a help uh, on the fraud side as well as the marketing and sales side too, right? Yeah, so yeah, absolutely, and absolutely. Capital One, the issuer know you know, what they're customers purchasing so that they know, oh, we should offer an extra, you know, a few basis points on 
of rewards on gift cards or whatever it is, right? Yeah, um, no, but also on the protection side, if you see somebody who's never bought, you know, gift cards and all of a sudden they're buying $5,000, that's going to have a higher risk than $5,000 worth of, you know, something else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's a great example too. And I think that's something that a lot of merchants could focus in on is, as you said, there the data aspect mm-hmm. of it, right? Is there's there's a lot of good data out there that you can use for all sorts of different things, and not even be fraud related, right? But it maybe it's some sort of data that you've gleaned from you know the financial transaction. Yeah. So yeah, no, I think that's a great question, and and one where you know I think. Like I said, not only is there, you know, some technology out there, but I think, you know, whatever merchants can do to just continue to build the relationships that they have or that they want to have with issuers, I think can go a long way and, you know, helping to bridge some of those gaps that there are. Yeah. And I mentioned this, I think, on the last episode, but I worked for over a year on a project that was meant to bring merchants and issuers together on sharing the data on the back end and felt very passionate about that. And even though that, particular company, you know, didn't uh, succeed that goal. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And I, I also know there's a huge merchant appetite for it because I worked with a lot of the big ones who were excited about the, the proposition, you know, the value proposition of that product. And then, you know, like you said, there's two different types of collaboration. There's the data collaboration, and then there's the information sharing collaboration, which can be just as useful. That's one of the big reasons I wanted you on this podcast. Just even understanding the issuer perspective can be so helpful to merchants and vice versa. And I think, you know, lastly on the data side, you know, I've been, I had Uri Arad from Identic on last season and they're doing a lot to work with uh, merchants as well as some issuers in creating a peer-to-peer network where they're able to verify and validate each other's information or each other's customer information without ever actually sharing the information. No data leaves the server. And I think that type of technology is really exciting. And I know, you know, CentiLink, where you're at now, is also, you know, a a data consortium of sorts for issuers and financial institutions. And so that's something that you and I definitely can agree on is just how important collaboration is in both of those ways, whether it's data collaboration or info share. Yep. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And knowing and some great examples there about, you know, folks kind of thinking outside the box when it comes to data sharing, because, you know, yeah, we all have, you know, we want to keep, you know, customers information safe. Yeah. Right. And there's, there's a lot of, you know, rules and regulations about data and data sharing, you know, obviously, you know, you're always at the risk of a cyber attack when you have a lot of good data that, right. you know, bad guys want. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's examples out there where people are, you know, able to collaborate across, you know, spectrums like that issuer, merchant, et cetera, and not, you know, and, and do it safely mm-hmm. and, you know, in a way that it doesn't compromise people's data, people's privacy. Right. You know, it can be done. Yeah. And for now, what I heard you say in answer to that question is anytime you can send extra information, whether it's AVS, CVV, 3D Secure, I also can say that's going to help the issuer make the decision. I've seen, uh, I've worked with merchants who have added CVV to their payment flow, and that can sometimes be uh, the kiss of death to somebody in the marketing department. They get so angry about that. Oh, why are you asking for this extra information? We're going to have so much, you know, drop off. And all yeah. conversion issues. And what actually has happened mo- a lot of times is that not only does the conversion not really 
get impacted at all. There's not a lot of attrition there. They actually see their authorizations from issuers go up. Oh, yeah. They're, they're providing more information that verifies yep. the cardholder. Yeah, I can't even fathom on an e-commerce merchant not using CVB. And I will say a lot of bad guys have it too, right? So somebody they do, they do. getting the wrong CVB code. That's actually yep. just somebody fat fingering their own. But I'm not necessarily saying require it to match what's on the bank, but at least send it over to the bank. You're going to give the bank more information to be able to authorize yep. which oh, yeah. your sales. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the more info you can, you can pass over, you know, to the, you know, issuer, the, the better. So yeah, no, absolutely. And then just to add on one other question, what about advice to merchants on chargebacks? This is something you and I talked about offline a little bit as far as, you know, whether they should answer them, shouldn't answer them, you know, answer all of them, not all of them. What would be your, good try not to influence your answer, what would be yeah. your recommendation? Well, you know, it, it's funny, yeah, I mean, we talked about an instance that I brought up where, you know, when I was back at Chase, we had a particular merchant that like repreed everything, mm-hmm. you know, and that obviously did not sit well <laughs> right. with, with the issuer. It did sit well with, you know, the acquirer, it did sit well with Visa, you know, you start getting, you know, people just don't like that. Right. So I think yeah. just as the issuer needs to find a balance between allowing people to use the card and stopping fraud, the merchant also needs to find a good balance of, you know, what chargebacks am I going to accept? What am I going to fight? You know, I think, you know, it's, you know, finding a balance there. And yeah, I think for, you know, I think a lot of the merchants that are really good at the chargeback piece, it's not because they have found like a gotcha or some secret like way of winning. It's they understand the business. They understand Mm -hmm. their business. They understand the issuer. Mm-hmm. Right. And they understand the fraud that they have and are finding those opportunities. Right. Because no doubt, you know, I mean, you know, a large issuer is doing, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of chargebacks a month. Right. Right. So there is, there's no way that they're investigating every single one of those. No, charges. no, I totally Whether agree. Whether it be a fraud that- chargeback yeah. or a customer service type of chargeback, you know, for, you know, goods not received or I didn't like them or they were damaged or, mm. you know, whatever the reason might be, those aren't all getting, you know, an in-depth review. Right. And so yeah. just, you know, you know, no fault of the issuer, right. It's just right. volume thing. now it's possible to review all of those. Right. And so I think it's good for, you know, a merchant to know that a lot of times that the issuer is not doing that on purpose. Right. Right. They're not just trying to flood them with, with something, you know, so, but on the same, on the kind of the flip side of that, I think, you know, uh, a merchant should be, you know, really have their, you know, hands on, you know, how much is their chargebacks, specifically what issuers their chargebacks might be coming from. Yeah. That's, that can tell you a lot about what might be going on fraud-wise with, you know, some sort of fraud attack or fraud mm-hmm. trend. Because, you know, bad guys target different banks. They do. They just, bad guys you know, pay attention to bins more than good guys a lot of they times. They do. They do. I, 
I have a lot of rant about that because the car yeah. brands don't actually, you know, publish bin lists for, you know, they're not sanctioned, right? So the best bin lists are available on, in dark web resources. And I am aware of the reasons for why the car brands do it. And I don't agree with them, but that's fine. Whatever. We can move on there. But to your point, looking at that from a fraud perspective as well as from a non-fraud chargeback perspective can be really interesting. And I uh, am big on chargeback analytics, way more than just win rate and this and that, you know, what was the source of it, what it was the affiliate, the marketing, all those things. I think two things I wanted to just highlight is one, I agree with you 100% that merchants should not be responding to every chargeback. I think a lot of chargeback providers or just people who do chargebacks for internally for their company have this theory that they're just going to throw as much up against the wall and see what sticks. And what I've found by the numbers and the data and working with a lot of merchants on this, and I think this is what you're saying too, is when you respond to everything, your processor's eyes glaze over, the issuer's eyes glaze over, they're not actually going to pay attention to it. Same with if you're not responding to it in the right way with the right information in the right order, but that's another topic because you got to find it quick because they're they all have their SLAs and they need to review a certain number an hour etc so you just need to make it really easy for them to find it and understand what happened but I've found when I've worked with merchants who responded to all of them before and then we take a more strategic approach and say okay well let's filter out the ones that look like they're for sure true fraud and let's filter out the ones where uh, it didn't provide what you said and those they actually have a higher win rate yeah, I'm sure. Even at, even if you're taking all the chargebacks and doing it that way with the bigger, you know, denominator or numerator denominator, I get those two mixed up. I know which one, but but you know, you'll win more because people start to realize over time, oh, okay, they're not just sending me garbage for all of them. I don't have to sort out which one is legit and which one isn't. They already did it for yep. me. The other thing I wanted to know is that someone that used to work with you, and gosh, I wish I could remember who it was, once said at a merchant conference. That sometimes on the issuing side, they, if there's a chargeback that they're looking to file and they're not sure, you know, if it should, it's kind of on the fence, whether it's, you know, would win or not for the issuer. They'll look up if the merchant responds to any chargebacks at all. And if they respond to all of them, they're not as concerned because they know it's probably not quality. But if they're responding to several and they have a, you know, a good, decent win rate Mm -hmm. or you know, representment rate where it's not returning into a second time or a pre-arc, yep. they'll push it over the fence. And I think that's an interesting thing. You know, we can debate whether that's right or wrong, but I think it's better. But I don't think that's important. I think it's more important to know that's what happens. So for people who aren't responding to chargebacks and just counting them as a, you know, cost of doing business. Yep. Yeah, no, great example yeah. of use of data, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I don't think a merchant should be surprised to hear that an right. issuer knows a lot about their chargeback mm. process. You know, they know what merchants, how many are going to each merchant, how many are being successful, how many are going to repre, pre arb you know, uh, dollar amounts, you know, your large issuers are keeping track of a lot of that data mm. and are using it to make sure that they're getting the most out of their chargeback program. They're optimizing again, their program. Right. You know, it's it costs money to, you know, it's very yeah. labor intensive. Yeah. You know, and it, so it's, yeah, you know, it's not something that you do for free. And so you've got to maximize your resources that you have. So no, great. Yeah. Great call out that, you know, you can use that data uh, a lot of different ways. 
Right, right. There's a chargeback company that I work with, you know, as an advisor, and they have also done a lot of data on their side as far as which issuers to, you know, push a little bit harder on too. You know, they're able to see that 10,000 foot view and they're looking at it from an issuer perspective and they have a lot of relationships with them too. And so, you know, I think that it's important, uh, the people who only are keeping track of just the very basic chargeback uh, analytics piece, I think, are missing out a lot of things from root cause of your chargeback all the way to patterns that can help you recover and retain more revenue for your company on either side of the fence. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So moving on, I think that was a really good answer and hope that merchant found, I think a lot of merchants and listeners in general found that interesting. Uh, next one from an e-com merchant is, how do you understand things from the acquiring or merchant perspective? In my experience, the issuing side doesn't always understand the deeper challenges of the merchant side, in large part because issuers will always get paid. <laughs> and we, no, that, I mean, we knew that. Yeah. Yeah, that's the perspective. And it, is it from a card not present perspective, it's not wrong. No, and I think, you know, for me, I would say I've tried to make it a point to understand a lot mm -hmm. of merchants' perspectives. Obviously, I worked for a large retailer for a while. And so you got a little bit of, okay, you know, that side of, of things and, the, you know, the type of challenges that a, a merchant, especially, you know, a large e-commerce merchant might have. You know, so I, I think in general, you know, a lot of issuers don't have a lot of good perspective on mm. what, you know, a merchant is going through. I, I will say I, for me, I think I was a little lucky because at Chase, we had a large acquiring business. Mm. We also had a large right. co-brand business. Mm -hmm. So we partnered with a lot of merchants that were either part of our merchant acquiring business or part of our co-brand, a partnership. Similar to the way I was describing how Capital One had partnered with Walmart yeah, uh, because of that co-brand relationship. And so, you know, through some of those, you got to understand a little bit about, you know, well, you know, perspectives and just different strategies, right, that a, a merchant might have. And, you know, some of those challenges that merchants have, I mean, um, you know, I, I think a lot of merchants, whether it be, you know, the type of merchandise or services that they may sell to, you know, the seasonality of mm -hmm. sales, right? Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, I think you can all remember those crazy Black Fridays. Like, I remember, I think it was a Target, like they, you know, typically they had like the video games and like a locked case. Oh, yeah. And for Black Friday, they unlock everything, right? Because you've got so many people right. you can't. If you think about it, a merchant kind of does the same thing in the e-commerce world, right? You can't keep everything right like locked up mm. because you have so many people trying to buy stuff, right? That you've kind of got to let a little bit, you know, the fraud checks go a little bit or, mm -hmm. you know, you just have to take a different strategy. And so, you know, understanding those type of seasonality things and, yeah. um, yeah, I think you, you guys, know. your team, I mean, especially when I worked with you when you were at, you know, Cap One. You guys did a really good job of trying to learn that. But to your point, I think that's unfortunately at this point more you know, the exception, not the rule. I, Absolutely. I would love to at least be part of trying to knock some of those silo walls down at some point in my career and, and have some ideas of how to do that down the line. But I think that it really comes down to, you know, listening to each other's perspectives 
because I think that just as much as, you know, the e-commerce merchant side can point fingers at the issuers can point fingers at, mer at some merchants and be very right as well. So I, I think it's, you know, it's fair to just kind of put down the pitchforks, so to speak, and try to learn. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because each side, everybody has a boss, right? And, you know, and each side of the equation, you know, it's about making sure that you're aligned with that. And I, we can argue about the liability rules for card dot president all day long, but the fact of the matter is you and I talking about it and arguing about it isn't going to change anything. Not this far downstream. So I think instead it's important to learn what you can and optimize what you can and, you know, move forward within what we're, what we have. But I'm obviously a huge advocate for that. And I know you have been as well, but I do think there's definitely room for improvement just to you know keep it rolling along this next question i thought was really interesting if a merchant identifies and i've actually in your past you know career have reached out to you because merchants have identified something like this to me and i've reached out to you but if a merchant identifies an anomaly in payments fraud or chargebacks and the analysis confirms that it's isolated to a specific issuer what tips would you give for pursuing a dialogue or resolution with that issuer yeah, no, that's a great question. And I definitely have been involved in quite a few of those types of situations. And mm -hmm. I would say just first and foremost, the issuer wants to hear from you. Hmm. They, they want to know about it, but I think the key is you want to be able to connect with the right people yeah. at the issuer. And that's right for, and, on the merchant side, like you don't know who to reach out to and you don't exactly. know. Exactly. Especially for Visa MasterCard, they've built so many, you know, there's just so many issuers and so many merchants and so many, and it's yep. varied. So I yep. agree that I think the issuers want to know about those. At least the people in the fraud department want to know about that. Exactly. Yep. And that's where like you got to. It's hard to know. Right. Oh, right. That's where I think there's a lot of really good fraud organizations out there, whether it be the ACFE, IAFCI, and I can keep, you know, so I think those are, mm. are great places where I would hope issuers and merchants be a part of mm -hmm. collaborate in mm -hmm. before there's a fraud issue, because that is going to, I don't know how many times. So I've been a part of the IFCI, the international association of financial crime investigators <laughs> since like 2007. And I don't know how many times I've been able to go onto that directory, find a contact at a particular merchant, pick up the phone. And I'm talking to somebody who made the, uh, decision to be a part of an organization right. and it was then open to, you know, I don't know how many times I would say, Hey, I, I got your name off the IACI directory. I'm a member as well. Hmm. And those guard, you know, it was this, oh, yeah, oh yeah, you bet. What can I do for you? How can I help? You know, and, you know, being a part of those fraud organizations, I think is a huge foundational piece. Again, whether you're an issuer or you're a merchant, being actively involved in those groups mm -hmm. is a great way to be able to get connected to the right people. So when that instance of fraud happens, you're like, oh yeah, I know exactly who yeah. I can call, who is either going to help me directly or at least point me in the right direction. Yeah, I've kind of unofficially become that person for a lot of <laughs> federal law enforcement, especially. Yeah. They're like, I don't know who to contact at this merchant. And yep. um, I usually yep. do. And most of the time, the merchants are very appreciative of that contact. Sometimes they're like, uh, we don't really care. But that's happened very rarely, I should say. Uh, exactly. Uh, I've had the I've had the same 
Mm-hmm. Um, like if put their fingers in their ears, they can't hear anything. I mean, I, in fact, I can really only remember one instance where yeah, I just I I couldn't get any traction response back from you know this particular mm-hmm. uh, retailer and. You know, I, I, I yeah, I don't really get it within four years, but we won't be doing that now. <laughs> you know, it was funny because the bank, we weren't even taking a loss. We were just charging all of this back. Oh, right. Geez. Right. But there was obviously something going on, right? Yeah, and you want to let them know. Yeah. They're going to compromise. Partner with them. If yeah. They wanted to get law enforcement investigation. Yeah. That had the chargebacks. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, let's work together here. Like, let's try to solve this problem mm. instead of us just. Continuing to charge back all day long. Right, uh, right. You know, so yeah, I mean, I think the foundation of that is is really, and I think we've talked about it the entire time here, is that mm-hmm. networking piece, right? Yeah. It's, you need to be engaged in these fraud groups, these associations, whatever it is, where there's information sharing, there's like-minded people, there's, you know, a networking aspect to it, you know, because again, people... The other person has chosen to be a part of that organization for a reason. It's because they want to network, yeah. want to help. They want to be involved in fraud. It's just a great resource that I've found. And it's one where, again, it's, it's you know, takes those barriers down, right? Because not only are you typically getting directly to the right type of person you want to talk to, but there's somebody that, that obviously isn't open to, mm-hmm. you know, working with you and sharing information. Yeah. And LinkedIn is a great resource. I will say absolutely that more than ever the last, you know, several months or year, a lot of it has been used for, you know, sales attempts, which is, you know, sales mm-hmm. people have a job. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, that means that a lot of people just don't look at their inbox or yeah, they just start they ignoring it. Right, right. Or they assume that everybody who's reaching out is trying to sell them something. So definitely that's, you know, just another tick mark for, you know, attending events. And I think as someone who is lucky enough to create, you know, networking events, that's something I've always wanted is to be able to include more issuers. It's been a challenge, but it's not, I've never been one back down from a challenge. So that's for sure. But I mean, I think it's also not my only focus, unfortunately. So, you know, it's not, If I think if that were the case, it'd be easier. But I think I would also just add that when a merchant does reach out to the issuer, talking to them as a peer and not as the enemy is also going to go a long way. <laughs> that would be my yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you should really come to this as you know, from a, a position and perspective of collaboration, yes, of partnership of hey, let's you know work together, you know, just as you know, if yeah, I mean, and that's you know, one thing I you know, whether the bank was taking the loss or not, I never like that, never really crossed my mind mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. had nothing to do with that we just had like right. to me i felt like we had a common enemy right it's not us. exactly i was just gonna it's say that it shouldn't be money from someone right let's just work together and and get them right yes uh, yes and i think that's huge right instead of seeing you know issuer versus merchant and you know versus the car brands and all of that yeah there are some things that i, I totally 100 get it but also it shouldn't be issuer versus merchant or, you know, merchant versus car brand, whatever. It should be all of us against the bad guy. Um, yes, the bad guys, there's a lot of, and women, but there's a lot of, you know, but yeah. the fraudsters. Yeah. And so, you know, leveraging that is, it should be, 
more important than frustration, even though there's rightful frustration on either side for different reasons. Speaking of, you know, looking into data, how much visibility do you have as an issuer into linking fraud trends across your part? portfolio? And and if any, how did you leverage this on behalf of your customers? And I think this will lead into the next question. So I'm kind of going to blend them. Okay. Because we talked about this next one a little bit because it came up in a, a call I had in between our two interviews with a very large merchant. And they said, if an issuer's been as compromised in your experience, what do they do? So I think both of those, right? When you're, how much visibility do you have into linking fraud trends? And then you know, and how are you leveraging that? And then how, if a bin is compromised, I know there's various strategies, but what are some examples of what can or is done? Yeah, no, those are some great questions. And so for the first one about, you know, being able to link fraud trends and kind of knowing what's going on across your portfolio, that, that was something we had a lot of insight and a lot of analytics on. I mean, whether it was at Chase or Capital One, I mean, we had entire teams of people who were just analyzing fraud data to identify Mm -hmm. trends and whether it was something that needed some sort of fraud strategy to, you know, a decline strategy, whatever type of strategy it needed to, you know, maybe it was something that needed to be kicked over for investigations, whatever Mm -hmm. it was, there was a lot of focus, you know, on identifying you know, fraud trends and linking things together, very proactive from the issuers I worked at and very proactive, not only on identifying fraud trends, but then mm-hmm. putting things in place to try to mitigate that fraud. Right. You know, and so, yeah, I mean, and being, spending a lot of time in the investigations world where I was at, we benefited a lot from that analytics because analytics kind of was became intelligence that was used twofold. It was used to, for fraud prevention, right? To some sort of fraud strategy. But then we also benefited from it investigations because we're like, oh, we got all this fraud going on that's linked together by whatever type of data element or just some sort of overlying type of fraud aspect that we could then run with and maybe get law enforcement involved, or maybe we need to reach out to a particular retailer or engage someone within the internet, you know, there's all sorts of things we could do. Right. And so, yeah, we, we, we had a lot of insight into, no, we always wanted more, right? No, well, I always, uh, uh, and, and it's changed a lot. Right. I mean, especially with, you know, I mean, feel old, right. But, you know, back when I first started, we didn't have a banking app. We didn't have online banking, you know, things were primarily done over the phone or over the mail, you know, now in today's world of, you know, online, whatever, now you have so much more data, right? You have IP addresses, right. you have device IDs, you have, you know, behavioral metrics, you know, like is someone copying and pasting stuff into an application, right. you know, is that suspicious to, you know, all of those, there's just so many data elements now, whether it's you're verifying, you know, you know, driver's licenses or face, you know, selfies <laughs> or, you know, voice biometrics, right. um, there's just so much data out there now that, that helps you do that. And then you're right. That second question about, you know, bin compromise or, you know, large card compromises, the merchants I previously, or merchants, the issuers I previously worked with did not typically do any sort of large reissue of cards. At Chase, 
So pretty much the one and only time we attempted it was from the target compromise and it just didn't go well. The, the computer systems weren't really built for mass compromise reissues. And so it was kind of one of those learnings where, you know what, I think we're probably better off, you know, having some particular fraud strategies in place, right. To, you know, try to better, you know, if fraud's going to happen, let's just try to minimize it, you know, and, and Really, for a lot of folks that were around back then, kind of after that target compromise for like the next couple of years, there was just compromise after compromise. Oh, yeah. Cards were, it was like, yeah, we're really hit. Yeah. Now it's more, you know, data rich information and, and user information exactly. from passwords to, you know, for, yep. of, yeah, now it's like username and password login. Right. And right. right. Yep. I meant it Which was it all the has its own kind of issues, but right, right. Back then, which was so not I, that many years ago. No, 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 no. But technology and payments move and change so fast. I think it's important yeah. to to recognize yeah. that for sure. I think yeah. there are probably several people that are like, wait, issuing banks don't reissue cards in advance is what you mean, right? So I just wanted to verify that when a consumer, when a cardholder calls and says, hey, my card was stolen, that's They're different. Getting- what you're talking about is proactive when you see, okay, yep. all of these customers made a purchase at this point of compromise during the dates that it was compromised and doing proactive. Now, taking that a step further, there are some feelings on the card not present merchant side that if you may see card numbers that are compromised and then they see, you know, traffic on the card. You're just going to pass it through because it's not your money. I am sure you cannot speak for every issuer and I know that. But when you talk about the fraud strategies, can you give an example of a couple? I mean, without giving away, you know, a lot of secret sauce that's going to help any fraudster. But just, you know, what are some examples of that just to kind of maybe calm the, calm the nerves? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, one thing is, you know, if, if we knew that particular cards or a particular bin were, you know, compromised, those, you know, those particular cards or that particular bin might be monitored a little bit more in depth just to see, well, what type of fraud might be happening, right? Are they, you know, back in the day, were they counterfeiting cards or and making physical purchases? Or is it, you know, e-commerce is there a particular maybe an e-commerce retailer that's being targeted or type of retailer and so that kind of data can then be funneled into the fraud strategy to say hey you know maybe you know we're going to you know if this is a particular you know retailer that is completely out of the customer spending history you know that's a charge that's going to be declined and you know reach out to the customer to verify the transaction something like that you know, you might be doing something with particular dollar amounts, mm, right? And, um, Just maybe trying to, uh, or, you know, one thing that's been nice over the years is, you know, a lot of issuers now, um, it's, it's very quick, easy, and cost-effective to like text message the customer. Right. Hey, was this, you know, so a lot of issuers can just use that type of fraud strategy that kind of helps supplement things of, well, hey, let's just, you know, because before you had a physically call the customer right and that right only do so much you we could hold on in that back in the day yeah, but, you, you know now we're very large travel company and yeah. we needed to get a hold of the cardholder quickly to know did you make this purchase or not yeah it was always yeah. hard to get a hold of them especially yeah. when most of the phone numbers we had were landlines <laughs> yep so now you know you can text them you can email them there's just a lot more ways to interact and quickly get back answers right right you know so you could do things like that i will preference the whole not reissue 
So at Chase, they definitely reissued everything on the debit card side because that's the customer's right. money. Mm-hmm. So if we knew that a bin was compromised, a particular card was compromised, those cards were actively reissued. Mm. The debit cards were. It was the credit cards that they were not actively, you know, we did not actively reissue in most instances, you know, and especially, you know, there was a time there that, you know, we talked about when there were all these compromises and it was, you know, you, you can't send the customer, you know, eight or nine cards a year. Eight. Uh, that's just is not practical. <laughs> right. You know, people have, you know, subscriptions. Well, uh, yeah, but not only that, but then I think about the people that steal mail, right? And then that, you know, whole other better for fraud too. I mean, it's a different type of fraud and all that. But the more times you're sending, especially when, and I know this happened a lot with, you know, we'll, you know, bring up the target breach because it was one of the biggest and, and one of the most well-known that, you know, and obviously this was many years ago. And so they're, I just want to make sure nobody there's gets upset at me, but I think they're aware of it. I know they're aware of it. I'm joking. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, with that one, which was, I think, in 2013, so eight years ago, right around November. And I actually have some funny anecdotes around that time that I might share on the podcast another time because I was right in it then because I worked for the Merchant Risk Council then. But I know that around that time too, there were a lot of people that stole mail that knew that most issuing banks were reissuing cards and sending it in. So mail theft went up quite a bit during that time in hopes that one of the days that they stole someone's mail, there would be a new card issued there. And that was also around the time where less issuers were requiring activations by phone. And so there. Oh my gosh, it makes me feel old, even though, like I said, this was eight years ago. But so much <laughs> that long ago. <laughs> no, but so much changes in this space so fast, and this is part of the reason why we love it. Often, I joke I'm going to someday become like a fraud historian because I feel like I'm like back in my day. We used to, you know, walk up the hill and snow both ways, all that thing. But no, I think that's oh, interesting. Yeah. And I actually have worked with a company that provides full card data from trying to think of ways to say it. Well, actually, I mean, we had Ellie Dominance, the CEO of Q6 Cyber on the podcast last year. And so, and he talked about this, how they provide a lot of information to banks in advance to let them know what Yep. You know, specific card numbers are being compromised often before they've been sold in use and monetized. And so I know that issuers are leveraging that data. I know that the biggest issuers are, are using that data and some very large e-commerce companies are using it in different ways. Not full card number, but there's credentials ahead of time for ATOs yep. and other things, other really cool use cases. But I think that's also, you know, good to know is that the issuers do have a lot of great data in getting that information, but they also have to be strategic in how they leverage it because they're not just thinking about one side. You know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? When you're in fraud, everything looks like we need to stop it. And and we do, but there are always going to be these other things that we need to consider. And I think, you know, putting, I, I know that a lot of issuers leverage that data by putting a lot of alerts on it. If there, we see spending outside of the cardholders, normal spending patterns, then we're going to decline it. If we see, you know, if we're going to limit it to maybe $100 or $500, you know, just until they get a new card, those types of things. So I just wanted to be you know, make sure that we all understand it's not just a model. There's not just one way. It's not linear. There's a lot of things to consider. There's a lot of nuance. In a perfect world, issuers would reissue all the cards. But then I think we also have to think to your point, what about all the cards on file? 
What about all the subscriptions? What about, you know, blah, 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 like fill in the blank. And so there also could be a lot of inconveniences for people getting the things that they need because of that. And merchants would suffer as well from a decline perspective, from a revenue perspective. So I try to look at the whole picture as much as I can. It'll always be through the lens of an e-commerce merchant. I can't help that that's where I started and where I've been most of my career. But I think it's really helpful to get that information from the lens of someone, you know, who has a different perspective. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think we've made it through the questions from merchants. I just have two or three to follow up on. And they're kind of going back to more your career. So thank you for putting on your former issuer hat and answering those questions. And I wanted to know what are some of the most memorable fraud methods or individual fraud stories you can remember from your, you know, over 18 years of working in fraud for issuing banks. I imagine there are several, but we all have those memorable go-to stories. Yeah. The ones we tell it, you know, yeah. parties or whatever and obviously you know you have to kind of scrub them through your head and and maybe not say which yeah. or which company or which you know whatever but maybe one or two that could be fun for those of us listening that like those things yeah so there was this there's one instance so one of the things that i used to do at chase was we were heavily involved with our legal team when like customers would sue the bank Mm-hmm. typically for not accepting their fraud claim or their dispute. Oh, interesting. I actually had you know, thought about so, that, but they're yeah, so the cardholders yeah, exactly. to the bank because they so, didn't. I mean, exactly. And so we had this particular customer who did not win a chargeback dispute on some airline ticket. And the airline ticket was in his name, right? So that was a basis of like, I don't know why this would be you. Like, I, you know, <laughs> and so... He ended up going to small claims court. This is in Colorado. Because, you know, it was only, might have been a thousand dollars. I don't know what it was. But it was just kind of one of those situations. It was like just a little weird. And so our legal folks had reached out to us in investigations. Just, hey, can you guys just take a quick look at this? We want to make sure, you know, everything looks good with what we ended up doing. And I don't know. There was just something weird about the whole situation. It just didn't make a lot of sense to me. Like. Why is this guy fighting this? So it just didn't make any sense. And so ended up just digging into this person's identity a little bit with some of the databases we had access to and come to find out this guy appears to be using a couple different social security numbers and potentially a couple different identity, which was just really odd. And so we just did a little bit more dig in. And at the end of the day, we come to find out it appeared that the identity used to on the account and the identity that then would have been the airline ticket was not this person's real identity. You know, whether it was a synthetic identity or an identity theft situation, it was not. And so it was like the identity of the person using it or the identity of the person's. Yes. Okay. No, the identity of the person using the car. Interesting. so, so the guy going to Snapling Square actually was telling the truth. No, so he. So what we found out. So what we ended up doing was he was supposed to come in for a, a hearing, and we ended up reaching out to some law enforcement contacts in Colorado, who were then able to really dig into this guy's identity, mold some of what you know his driver's licenses, and sure enough. His same picture is on two different driver's licenses on two different completely named. Wow. One name, one name was his real identity. 
The other name was the name that was on the credit card account. And the state the didn't ticket. didn't recognize that. I don't know. Not I mean, it didn't have facial recognition. How did that kind of, right? no, no. So, so really it was like, okay. And then when they start looking at who this real guy is, they find out that he has, you know, a, a job in like the aerospace industry that is actually, he actually has top secret security clearance for. So it's like, okay, this is really weird. Like this guy doing this whole second identity thing and then disputing this, you know, $800 airline ticket. Wow. And, <laughs> and so what we ended up doing was we ended up, he actually came into court for his small claims court appearance and the law enforcement investigator went up to him and actually asked him, called him by his fake name and he answered to it. And so they immediately arrested him. And sure enough, you know, search warrant at his house. He's got passport in this other name, several other identities, just kind of one of those that just ended up being this just really weird situation. Again, he worked for like this aerospace company and had top secret security clearance. And it's like, well, what are you doing? And and so that was just one of those where there was like very little fraud. It was just one of those where it's like, I don't know. You had like your spidey sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> Something it probably would be like a little bit of a, you know, just a little task and then it turned into a big one. And then it sounds like he actually got into himself in a lot of trouble by. Oh, he did. Uh, he got arrested in, you know, yeah. federal agents and the whole nine yards. And it, yeah, it was just one of those weird situations where you're just like, I don't know, something isn't right here. Let me just look at this for a minute. And sure enough, it was like, yeah. And then real quick, another situation. So, um, like elder financial use has always been something that just always got on. I did. I eat it. I hate it. And, you know, when I was in the investigations at team at chase, we had the ability to, you know, pick up the phone and call law enforcement for help on certain situations. And so I had a case come across my desk. I think it was referred over by somebody else in fraud, but it was just an elderly person in San Diego that basically had identity theft happen. Mm. And, and we were able to get a hold of a merchant or two where some of the charges were made at, and they had some invoices and some info. We ended up, and this is all in the course of, we ended up figuring out that the person who's doing it, uh, based upon like a phone number and some other info from merchants, that it was his caregiver. Oh. And, you know, so we're kind of able to quickly put together a lot of pieces. And so I ended up calling somebody who knew it at, you know, San Diego Sheriff's Department and they didn't like elder abuse. No. <laughs> and so they ended up literally that afternoon going down there and arresting her. She was at his house, but, it, you know, just super cool to be able to like yeah. call up, get somebody arrested that day you know, who was doing elder abuse and, but those cases, you know, there were a lot of those situations where it was, you know, I, I just, oh, those are just the worst, you know, especially when yeah. you know, someone in a, a position of trust like that, yep. you know, where they're a caregiver, you know, something like, you know, family member obviously is, is a terrible situation. And so, yeah. you know, thankfully I've been able to be a part of a lot of those situations where I've been able to, you know, either help law enforcement with an investigation they already have or proactively reach out to them, but, you know, really try to, you know, at least make a difference, you know, 
once or twice in those type of situations because I'm sure it was more than once and twice or twice, but I also know the feeling of like, you know, I just want a win, you know, so it's just whack-a-mole, especially, you know, on the upfront fraud side, trying to prevent it from coming in, whether it's application fraud, transaction fraud, et cetera. And so being able to see something through and have some sort of justice served is is gratifying in a way, especially when you're able to protect the people who can't are aren't in a position where they can necessarily protect themselves, like in elder abuse. And I'm in yep. agreement with you. I've yep, absolutely. dropped everything to help a few of those myself. And there's a couple of cases that I've learned about recently are some fraud methods that are targeting elders that I need to figure out which organization to reach out to for like, hey, you guys have a good, you know, line of educating you know, people, yeah. whether it's AARP or the Identity Theft Resource Center, you know, trying to get that information out because there, uh, to your point, there are a lot of merchants who want to do so much more than they can, but they're not able to, you know, of course they would want, you know, the fraud department or the trust and safety department would love to go to a large, you know, media publication and say, hey, you know, fraudsters are using our brand or this is happening to yep. this or whatever, you know, we want to get the word out. But obviously, there are, you know, PR departments and communications departments and legal departments that you, you kind of, that hold them back. And so sometimes when I get that information, I'm able to do a little bit more because I don't have that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So I completely get it, but I definitely I think that people like you that have been in this industry for so long really need to either write or contribute to a book. Maybe that's something that in my free time I've got in a few years. <laughs> there you go. Actually, it is on my roadmap for in a few years. I got a few more things I want to you know make sure I accomplish first. So a related question: You've had a front row seat to fraud evolving over the past two decades. I mean, I can imagine you've seen you know it going from carding being really a big you know, big thing, then identity theft, account takeover, you've seen synthetic. Where do you see it going? And what are some gaps or behavior you think that companies should be on the lookout for? Yeah, no, that's, you know, that's the, not a million dollar question, right? That's a multi-billion dollar question, but. It is. And hopefully that you know, that amount will be transferred into both of our bank accounts at the end of the day, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. You know, I think, yeah, no doubt things have changed a lot over the years. But I think it's interesting looking back, kind of one thing I think that has just kind of always been consistent is identity theft, right? And whether that be, you know, you're just plain old regular identity theft. Or, right. you know, I would consider account takeover to be identity theft as well. And, you know, then synthetic is a whole nother thing. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, identity theft itself and, you know, again, it's always been there. It's always typically been the largest loss for an issue. It's not the largest fraud amount typically, right? So yeah. transaction fraud is largest, but you get a lot of trust. By volume, right. So volume, but your lo- your largest loss line is always going to be identity theft, whether that be account takeovers or straight up identity theft. So it's always been the biggest. And I think this whole unemployment fraud, uh, oh, yeah. a reminder that identity theft is <laughs> well and alive as it ever has been, even mm-hmm. with, you know, I, I work, you know, SetiLink is, you know, provides identity theft solutions, right? right? There's a lot of providers out there, but it's one of those things where it's not 100% solved. And I, I think, again, the unemployment fraud 
that is, you know, there's so much identity theft, whether it's the identity theft, yeah. get the unemployment fraud, right. the identity theft to then go open up checking account, right. to right. order the money through. I think if anything, this has really showed us that identity theft is yeah. still really point. hot. And a couple of years ago, we kind of saw the identity theft become even more popular when the, the chip card rolled out because yeah. that cardy was done when it came to doing counterfeit cards. Like right, just, right. In person, yeah. That, mm-hmm. that business closed, right? Right. The fraudsters weren't going to stop. And so... They you know, came to Osborne and they went to you know, yeah, identity theft. Exactly. Yes, I'm going to I'm gonna go to e-commerce and if I can't, you know, make the card, I'll just go open an identity, <laughs> right? And I'll get the real card. And so, you know, we kind of saw... You know, the ID theft type of stuff, you know, and account takeovers, same way mm-hmm. kind of rise. And I think really, again, the unemployment fraud related identity theft just proves that it's here to right. stay. Right. And that not all industries. It's, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. And I think you have a good point. Not all industries that should be aware of identity theft are doing much about it. I mean, I I think I shared on the last season of the podcast that I worked with one of the states that was most affected and i think one of the more frustrating things well there were a few but one was just the outdated technology they weren't prepared for this type of fraud and also just the lack of there there was just a lot more apathy in that in that department because there wasn't really one person who owned that and so there were a lot of frustrating things but i think that it showed that whenever there's you know uh, Anything that can turn into a financial gain at the end, there there will be motivation to exploit the system. And I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think we'll just, you know, seeing identity theft evolve and continue, you know, because the the to be honest, I mean, and I think you know this too, the tactics I saw from the inside on the unemployment was very outdated. I mean, it was things that in e-commerce and in banking we had stopped and solved for. Yep. 10, 15 years ago. But yeah. so it wasn't sophisticated. Whenever I saw an article that said it was sophisticated, no. I was like, I mean, if a toddler is sophisticated to you, then sure. But, you know, but then again, we have lived and breathed this for many years. They have not. And so I do give some empathy there. But yeah. I think yeah, no, absolutely. These, a lot of these states, you know, do not have just your basic fraud prevention, you know, strategy and framework in place. I mean, you know, you hear the stories, you know, one address connected to however many, like, you know, just simple things like that that for any decent, you know, fraud team would Mm -hmm. have uh, made a lot of alarms go off. Right, right. You know, those things will rise to the warning of the scene. Right. Well, or they'll actually go to the yeah. level they need to. So if they don't need to use them, yeah, if they it's easy, psh, they're going to. You know? if, if I could get away with one address right. or, you know, dozens of unemployment claims, then vice. And, and I can yeah. say there are definitely situations where there are lots of members in the family that will do that. I have this is actually one of the many scenarios I talked through when reviewing rules for one of the states, you know, okay, so what's the, you know, let's look at the data, right? Like what's the average number of unemployment claims per household? And then let's look at the outline. But yeah, I think there was a lot going on. I think also just one thing I would add to kind of what I think and what I think I've heard from you throughout this conversation and where I think fraud will continue to go is as there's more innovation in payments and different payment methods and different payment types and neobanks and 
in crypto and all these other things that fraud will adapt and shift to that as well. That would be my oh yeah my contribution. To there, there's <laughs> there there's no doubt. I mean, I can remember when Apple Pay came oh. out, and no doubt Apple Pay in itself is a, a very secure. You know, it tokenizes the card number. That was the big thing, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no card number being stored or transmitted. It's a token, you know, great idea, great security behind it. But no doubt, you know, when I was at Chase, you were one of the first banks to go live with Apple Pay. And within 30 days, we were seeing multi-million dollar fraud losses from it. And it was, had nothing to do with Apple Pay itself. It was account takeover, right? The bad guys mm -hmm. know your info. They would just call up the call center, say, hi, I'm Carice. I'm trying to provision my Apple Pay. My device says it won't let me do it. Oh, sure. No problem. Just answer these couple questions. Mm -hmm. Let me provision it for you. And you're off to the races, right? And so, you know, the weak links. Yeah. And, you know, the fraudsters are all going to the back. Then they're always going to find a way around something at some point, you know. And it's funny you were talking about like mail theft, right? Mm -hmm. We definitely saw some increases in mail theft again after chip cards came mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't to steal the chip card necessarily. Oh. Part of it was that it was kind of twofold. It was, we would see a lot of just regular old mail theft and it could have been, and I've seen it at all levels, it, card production facilities, third party pre-sorting facilities and UPS facilities. Mm. So on a pretty map, even at the airport, you know, oh, on the yeah. tarmac. To drive around the neighborhood, opening up mailboxes, stealing mail, yeah. right? To, and then we would even see that kind of bleed itself into identity theft, where we started to see a lot of identity theft where the address used was the victim's real address. Yeah. Yeah. Like physically mailed a card there, right? And it, because the Frouser had no problem going out and stealing the mail from the mailbox when that card came, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it, merchants are seeing that as well. It's actually, Something yep. I'm going to do a solo episode on either, you know, this yep. past week or this coming week where there's been an increase in that, where the cardholder address yep. is being used. And, and there's actually some, there are some benefits beyond getting the item that are really kind of been mind bending some merchants. So that'll be an interesting conversation. I think, yeah, no, I think it's, you know, that's one of the things that we love, but also begrudge within our industry is the innovation <laughs> and it, it keeps our minds sharp trying to keep up. But but it's also, you know, some every once in a while, it's like, eh, but I also see, and you probably see this too, like them cycling through methods. So things that worked, you know, eight years ago, and then we stopped it. Well, now they'll go back to it. And now it'll work again yep. because rules were changed or, or nobody's really looking at that piece. It's like, you know, different holes in the boat. So it's. Yeah. You know, it's definitely part of the challenge, but also uh, part of the fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, but sometimes it's like, yeah. you know, one step forward, uh, steps back. Yeah, uh, and other times, two steps uh, forward, one step back. So it evens yeah. out, but that is just yet another reason why collaboration is so important. Uh, speaking of that, actually, last and final question. You've been such a champ, so thank you for this. You recently made a big jump from fraud practitioner on the front lines. Um, on the issuing side, and then also, you know, on the merchant side, to being a fraud advisor for CentiLink. What has that change been like for you? And what do you enjoy most about advising banks and financial institutions on fraud? Yeah. They, you know, just a little tiny question. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, <laughs> you know, nothing big there. No, no. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Well, so for folks that don't know, SentiLink is a best-in-class, I feel best-in-class, focus on synthetic identity fraud and identity theft. So the bread and butter was synthetic identity fraud. That's how the company started and, and what was the primary focus. And then recently we've moved into identity theft, which really just kind of a natural progression uh, yeah. because it's all about identities, right? Mm -hmm. And so we work with, you know, over a hundred different financial institutions, all different sizes, you know, credit unions to enterprise banks, to fintechs, and, you know, really just helping them solve their problems for synthetic identity fraud and for identity theft. And for me, those two areas have, you know, Hopefully it came out as we talked were big parts of my fraud life, identity theft, obviously a huge one. And then even more, you know, I did a lot of work, um, at Chase and Capital One for, you know, synthetic identity fraud and for bust out fraud. And so it, it just made a, a lot of sense for me to join the CentiLink team. I, I, you know, believe not only do they have some great products, but just some really great people. One of them was actually on the podcast last season, Shannon Slaughter. Yeah. yeah. At Merit Trust Credit Union when she was on the podcast. And now she is also a fraud advisor with you. Shannon is awesome. And she, you know, brings, you know, incredible background expertise. She's just great to work with. And yeah, so, you know, making that jump has been interesting on a couple different levels. <laughs> Just on one, you know, CentiLink, we, you know, we're in a startup. We just had our Series B funding uh, a few months ago. And, you know, I want to say I was about employee number 30. Yeah. So coming from, you know, Walmart, <laughs> the Fortune One. Right. To, you know, Capital One. And JK Right. Obviously, I'm a little was, fish and a big fish in a little barn. <laughs> yes. So obviously, you know, there was just that change right mm -hmm. and, and everything that goes with and then you know as you mentioned you know going from kind of being on the front lines of things at you know uh bank issuer merchant to kind of more of the advisory consultant type of role has been a lot of fun for me just to be able to kind of two things one be able to work on and have some great solutions for synthetic identity fraud and for identity theft that we can offer financial institutions. And then the flip side of that is then to be able to partner with some great financial institutions. And, you know, it's been fun the past couple months to meet so many different financial institutions and fintechs and issuers and lenders, understand their businesses, the different, you know, nuances to their products, who they're you know, marketing after, you know, their value propositions and then getting into what type of fraud they've got going on. Yeah. Right. Cause you know, fraud is fraud, but then there's, you know, all different flavors, right? It's like ice cream, right? Like ice cream flavors, is ice cream, you know? but there's all different flavors. Exactly. So, you know, it's, so that's just been exciting to, to work with so many different partners, you know, for so long, right. I've just been able to like help the company I've worked for. Right. So I, yeah. you know, and so to be able to kind of open that up and, and really be able to hopefully, you know, help a lot of different financial institutions, you know, fight, you know, synthetic identity fraud, try to prevent identity theft and, and other things, you know, you know, there's been some times now where not, I've been able to just help out different financial institutions with things that, 
don't necessarily involve the product that Scenti Lake has, yeah. but you know, it's an extra service and a lot, right? And yeah. you know, if if I can, you know, lend my two cents and and make a few recommendations, then you know, why not? But it, it, it's that, <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's just been, you know, what I, I, I've always been, you know, someone that has enjoyed learning about you know, different businesses, different products, different type of financial, you know, payment methods. And so, you know, it's been a lot of fun just to to learn about all of these different businesses, see all the different types of fraud that's going on. And, and then also very interesting to kind of get the best of both worlds, right? I still get to work directly with financial institutions and see and experience what they're going through individually. Yeah. But then I also get to see that kind of new fraud across all of these different financial institutions. Yeah. I call it the uh, micro and the macro. I, yeah, something I can obviously relate to just the, you know, it's fulfilling to have an impact and be able, but that, I think that 10,000 foot view is is my personal favorite. You're able to really see, oh, okay, this is migrating over here and here. And then you're able to tell your clients like, Hey, this is what I'm starting to see a theme. That's, I mean, I got, I, I I don't know if addicted is the right word, but you know, I definitely drank the Kool-Aid on that, you know, years ago in my career (laughs) and decided as much as I love being a front lines, you know, fraud fighter, I love being able to help the industry. And so, you know, for me, I get to have the micro level of working one-on-one with specific clients as you do as well. And then that macro level of looking across and starting to see themes and starting to see, oh, this, you know, company had this problem and this company had that problem. They're similar, but they're different. And it's it's been cool. You know, and I know you're a helper like I am as well, you know, a learner and a helper. So I think, I really think this is um, your time to shine. I I really, you know, been happy to see you really enjoy where you're at. And, you know, sometimes part of being a startup is having that common goal of, you know, having a rocket ship take off and, and that can be a really, you know, a really good thing too. And and I will say for what it's worth, I actually hadn't heard much about Centrelink because it's on the banking issue, you know, financial institution side, but I was talking to someone who I'm actually going to interview, I think next week for the podcast. And he was VP of risk for a pretty well-known fintech company for many years. And he now has gone on to consulting and he said that Centrelink is one of the companies that he has implemented with a lot of his clients on the fintech side because it does provide a lot of value. So, you know, I I actually have yet to see a demo, which I'm sure will have to have happen at some point. <laughs> but but that that recommendation meant a lot because he didn't know I knew anyone at Centrelink. So I was like, oh, wow, okay. You know, it's a small world, but it's always great when you work for a company that you believe in. And I'm glad that you've gotten that kind of that second chapter of now being able to use the experience and knowledge that you gained over the last 20 years to help others. And that's very fulfilling. Yeah, it's been exciting. It's been definitely fulfilling. And, you know, one one of the things that I probably like most about CentiLink is one of our company values is deep understanding. And one of the ways in which we kind of take that value and put it into into play is every Friday, everybody in the company reviews cases together. So we look at applications from whatever partner that, and we try to make heads or tails in these small groups 
Mm. Is this identity theft? Is it synthetic? And it's just a, a great way, you know, that we come together. And again, it's everybody from the HR folks to, you know, oh. our CEO and co-founders. Mm. We're all digging in. I love that. It's fraud, you know. And I want Shannon on my team. Well, <laughs> I don't know about that. But it's a lot of fun. Mm. It's, it's something that I, I hope, you know, as we grow we don't lose that focus. Yeah. I don't think we will. It's really a, a big kind of the, the heartbeat of the company, but it just goes to show, you know, that, that we take understanding the fraud very seriously. Right. There's uh, a difference between knowledge and understanding. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's really one thing that, that, you know, I, I was sent a link, you know, cause obviously in, in some of the positions I've been in the past with, in the past, I've been able to, you know, see a lot of Oh, yeah. You know, vendors and fraud solution providers and, you know, not everyone's created equal. There's some great ones out there. But, you know, one thing that I, I really saw that was different about Sentilink was that deep understanding of fraud. And mm. it's evident in all levels of the company, something that's taken serious, but also, you know, one of those things that's really valued. And, mm. and so, you know, I've really enjoyed that. But yeah, you know, as you had the opportunity to experience over the years, you know, being able to be in a position to have, you know, great impacts on, you know, more than just one organization yeah. is, is a lot of fun. It's awesome. Right. I have a really hard time going back. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Probably yeah. would too, because it's just, it's, it's very re rewarding and a yeah. lot of fun to, to be able to, to do it, you know, kind of on the scale that I'm able to now. And yeah, it's, you know, it's great. And, you know, it, it's, you know, kind of fun to, to be a part of a, in the startup world. Yeah. You know, Wait, sorry. yeah. If you were working in an office, I would say, you know, you probably get to wear jeans versus slacks, but well, that's another thing. You get to work remote. <laughs> I do. I do. You know, CentiLink is real big on, you know, you know, building a good, strong culture, even though a lot of us are remote. And so, you know, every couple months, you know, we're all invited in San Francisco for what we call Senti Week. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in a time where, you know, we don't necessarily get all the work done. But, but you break bread and you have right? cocktails and you share stories and you get to know each other and show pictures of their exactly. kids and all the exactly. things. Yeah. Exactly. You know, that, sometimes that's just as important as, as the work itself. And so, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. Definitely a, you know, casual environment, but, you know, again, just Lots of really great folks, yeah. really smart people, a lot of passion for fraud, which is exciting, you know? And mm -hmm. so, you know, I think the future is bright and hopefully, you know, we can help a lot of financial institutions stop a lot of fraudsters. So, you know, that's the goal is to, you know, try to put as many of these fraudsters out of business as we possibly can. I like that goal. It's a shared goal with a lot of people that are listening. With that, Ravi, I'm just so grateful. Thank you for spending so much time with me and with our listeners. I'm really excited for these episodes to get out. And I am sure that you will have uh, your share of LinkedIn connection requests as you should. I will put your LinkedIn, a link to your LinkedIn in the show notes so people can find you easily. But I just, again, appreciate your time and appreciate all of your insights and thank you again. And, you know, hopefully we can do this again later on. 
Yeah, absolutely. Again, thank you so much. Um, you know, huge fan of yours and everything you do to just, you know, bring like together it. the fraud fighting community. And it was a pleasure to, to be a guest. Well, thank you so much. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.